as found in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Put me like a signet over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. About 15 years ago, I went to Chicago to spend some time with my brother. My brother is a really gifted musician, and uh, he has a basement full of instruments, guitars, and so we had a really pleasant time um, uh, playing on his instruments. Well, he talked me into going to a guitar shop, uh, an upscale guitar shop, and then he talked me into uh, buying a guitar. So how do you go home and tell your wife that you spent a fair bit on a guitar that she wasn't expecting you to buy? Well, let me tell you how you do it. You say, honey, I bought a guitar, but I wrote you a song. <laughs> then you have to sing it to her, okay? And that's what I did. And where did I get some of the lyrics? Well, I borrowed from the Song of Solomon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. With spices on your wings, let the day breathe, the shadows flee. There you'll find my love. Well, the good news is I got to keep the guitar and my wife, so all is well. <laughs> so, some 15 years later now, here we are this morning in the Song of Solomon. Perhaps the women are saying, oh yes, from the Song of Solomon. And the men are saying, oh no, the Song of Solomon. But let me put everyone at rest, at least the men. I don't plan to venture much farther into the Song of Solomon this morning than the two verses of our text. But before we begin to think about those verses, let me just share a little bit about the difficulties in understanding the Song of Solomon and uh, even teaching it. The difficulties hit you right off. How do we understand the Song of Solomon and its purpose in sacred scripture? Well, you find it in the wisdom literature of the scriptures, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's the wisdom literature. It's all designed to uh, give you skill for living. That's its primary purpose. Well, what is the primary purpose of this Song of Solomon? Is it skill for living with regard to spousal love? 
Or should we spiritualize it in terms of Christ and the church? Well, that's how the Puritans dealt with the whole Song of Solomon. Basically, they spiritualized everything. And who is the beloved man? Is it Solomon the king? Or a poor shepherd boy? Well, I don't have to sort all those things out for you. I'll let you do that on your own. But for me to say, I understand the Song of Solomon as a love poem between a man and a woman moving through their stages of relationship, beginning with their first sight of each other, then falling in love, and ending in marriage. I think that's how the author primarily intended it, and I think that's how the audience, the first audience, primarily received it, but not exclusively. In that sense, the Song of Solomon has much to teach us about the skill for dating, engagement, and marriage. One of the chief skills I think it teaches is the gift of compliments. Throughout the song, the man and the woman are complimenting each other. Well, true, a lot of the expressions don't play well today, and I wouldn't recommend you use them. That's why we don't have a Song of Solomon line of Hallmark cards. Gentlemen, don't say to your wife, I compare you to a horse among Pharaoh's chariots. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. All of them bear their twins. Essentially, what you're saying is, drawing your teeth are white and you have them all. <laughs> you're so beautiful. I wouldn't say your belly is a heap of wheat, your nose like a Tower of Lebanon. It just doesn't play well, okay? But men, what wife would not love to hear, you are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's chapter 4 if you want to find it, by the way. And wives, what man wouldn't appreciate you saying, you are distinguished among 10,000. Your arms are like rods of gold. That's chapter 5, women, if you want to, you want to find that for your or your husband. But all that is just taking the Song of Solomon as merely a love poem between humans in human terms, but it is more than that, because all of Scripture has redemptive themes, and all of Scripture ultimately points to Jesus Christ. Also, with New Testament warrant, we have license to see in the Song of Solomon lessons about marriage and love, but the greater marriage and love between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
And so I see in the Song of Solomon analogies between God's love for us and our love for Him. An example. The poetic picture in chapter 8, it's verse 5, of the woman leaning on her beloved as they come up from the wilderness. What a beautiful picture by analogy of the Exodus and faithful Israel coming out of the wilderness, leaning, as it were, on the arm of the Lord. Or our greater exodus out of this wilderness world, leaning on Jesus. Well, there are other examples of uh, verses we could take by analogy to refer to Christ our relationship to Him. But I think the unmistakable analogy of God's love for us is found in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. These verses have been called the Old Testament counterpart to 1 Corinthians 13 in extolling the virtues of love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Love never ends. Love bears all things, for love is as strong as death. Ardor is fierce as the grave. Love endures all things, for its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Love never ends, for many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. Well, these verses are the high point and the glory of the Song of Solomon. And they speak of the nature of love. Love between spouses, to be sure, but expressed analogy, expressed analogy to the love of the Lord by reference to the flames of the Lord, is likened to love. And then by extension to the nature of love between Jesus, the beloved, and us, his beloved. So as we begin to think about these verses together, here's what I hope uh, to show you. The virtues of true love. First, the virtues as expressed in the song. The virtues of complete contentment, unyielding strength, and unquenchable intensity. Next, the virtues exemplified in God's love, Christ's love for us. And then we'll look at the warning against false love and by grace and help will make application of these things to us. So moving into the poem now, uh, keep in mind that the Song of Solomon tells a story. The lovers have seen each other from afar. They have thought about each other. In fact, it seems like the thoughts of one another dominate uh, 
their thinking. They have been betrothed and have moved towards marriage. By chapter 8, the couple are newlyweds. And then verse 5 sets the scene for this dialogue. Well, it's not really a dialogue. It's more of a monologue by the woman to her beloved. But verse 5, the scene. The couple are walking together, coming up from the wilderness. She is leaning on her beloved's arm, perhaps leaning her head upon him or placing her hand upon his breast. They pass by an apple tree, perhaps reminiscent of Adam and Eve in the garden. And then, I would take it still leaning upon his arm, the bride speaks to her husband, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. And there is the first of love's highest virtues, love's complete contentment. In the nature of true love, there is inward commitment confirmed by outward expression. And without both inward contentment or commitment and the outward expression of that commitment, you don't have real love. Love's commitment in the poem is expressed in the picture of a seal. First, a seal on the heart, and then a seal on the arm. What would this mean in an ancient Jewish poem where a young woman is asking that she would be placed as a seal on her husband's heart and then on his arm? And just a little detail about the Hebrew uh, it's not entirely specific whether it's arm or the arm could include the wrist, the hand or the finger Okay, so keep that in mind so a seal in the ancient Near East had a carving on it or a name that represented its owner And the owner would use it to mark ownership of something or sign a document or secure something. Let me give you some examples. Um, Turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. In Nehemiah 9, uh, Nehemiah is recounting what has been happening with the Israelites um, with respect to God, and they formulate a covenant. And I look at um, chapter 9, verse 38. Uh, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. 
And then verse, or chapter 10 goes on to name everyone's name on every seal that has been placed on that document. And that's the idea of a seal, okay? We have this formal covenant in writing. And everyone that is, uh, uh, in terms of responsible for leading the people and keeping covenant, is going to take their seal and they're going to impress it on this document. So it says, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, and it goes on to list all these things, okay? All the rest of the people. You can uh, also look at Daniel chapter 6. So the first example is taking a seal and using it with your name or um, an image. You might think of a family crest to, to document your uh, part of a covenant in writing. Well, here's the use of a seal in securing something. This is Daniel chapter 6, verse 16. Then um, the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and also with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Okay, so again, uh, that is uh, a use of the seal uh, in biblical times. If you gave your signet ring or your seal to someone, you were entrusting them with authority to act in your place, and whatever they did with your seal was as if you did it yourself. A good example of this is in Genesis chapter 41, verses 40, 42. Don't need to turn there, but Genesis 41 is when Joseph is raised up to the highest position of authority in Egypt, save Pharaoh himself. And when Pharaoh made Joseph uh, his vice-regent, he says to him, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only regards the throne will I be greater than you. And then in verse 42 of chapter 41, it says, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. So Joseph carried Pharaoh's seal and wherever he went throughout the land of Egypt, Joseph knew that a great trust had been given to him. And everything he did, he would do in the best interest of the king and the kingdom. That is how important and invaluable Pharaoh's seal was. And it wasn't just the ring. It was the seal on the ring and what the seal represented that made it so valuable. So people attached a great value to their personal seals. And they would guard them carefully. Some seals were like a rolled um, clay seal with a string around it, and they would uh, keep that seal around their neck. Okay? Um, 
or they would keep it on their arm as an armlet or on their finger in a ring. So then what is the poetic language suggesting in the Song of Solomon? The woman wants her husband to think of her as his own treasured seal. And more than that, she wants to be imprinted as a seal upon his heart and his arm. His heart representing his thoughts and feelings. His arm representing his power. So see what she is asking? She is asking that his heart be sealed for her alone and his strength be sealed for her. That he would commit heart, mind, and strength in love for her. So you see how lofty love is in the perfection of its commitment. Ah, but the poem goes on. That's just the first of the virtues of true love. See next love's unyielding strength. There is unyielding strength in committed love, for this love is as strong as death. Jealous love is as fierce as the grave. By the way, you may uh, see a footnote in your Bible for jealousy, giving an alternate rendering of ardor, ardent love, or zeal. I, I like that translation better because of the negative way we view jealousy today that green-eyed monster of jealousy. That's really not the idea here. It is zealous love, ardent love. Um, we see this same word translated that way in uh, Isaiah 26, verse 11. Uh, you might look there quickly. Isaiah 26, verse 11. O Lord, says, let them see your zeal. It's the same word. We could have said, let them see your jealousy for your people. So why is love likened to death and the grave? The answer is, poetically, it is a picture of lasting, unyielding, unbreakable grip. As 3,000 years ago as today, when death grips you, it does not let you go unless God commands death to release you. The grave, like death, is not satisfied with part of you. It wants all of you. It claims and holds you entirely. That is the poetic picture of the woman's request. Husband, love me with 
love as strong and complete and unrelenting as death. And guard me and your love for me as fiercely as the grave holds a body. It may sound morbid, but what the poet is doing is just stretching the language of comparison to simply liken love in the known world to the greatest and unyielding and fierce power that the poet can contemplate. The third virtue is love's unquenchable intensity. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. So love is compared to the flames of a fire, the flames of the Lord. That's how it's rendered in the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version. If it's, you're reading the King James, it is a render a most vehement flame. And it's just all how you uh, deal with the ending of the word for the flame. It uh, has the, uh, the word Yah. And very often that's just a shortening of Yahweh. Okay. Why a flame? Don't we usually associate fires with destruction? Um, you may know our son Christopher is pursuing a career in uh, firefighting, and you see uh, um, videos of firefighters uh, rushing to a home uh, to save it from utter destruction. And when a fire uh, begins in a field in uh, Oklahoma and the wind is blowing and it catches a cedar tree and then the next cedar tree and it begins to destroy everything in its path, why a flame? Well, we do associate flames and fire with destruction. And in a sense, love's flame consumes and conquers anything that would threaten it. But not every fire consumes and destroys. Some flames warm and comfort. And in the Old Testament imagery, purifies and brings forth beauty. I think that's the idea here. And love's true flame does not burn itself out over time. It sustains. There's a, I think, a beautiful picture of this sustaining uh, fire and flame of love in the story of Jacob. Uh, you can look at it. It's Genesis 29, but you know the story. Jacob uh, has left his homeland. He's in... Uh, now a distant land, um, and who does he love? He loves uh, Rachel. Ah, uh, but Uncle Laban, what does Uncle Laban say? You can have my daughter if you will work for me for seven years. 
And here's a verse. Uh, This is Genesis 29, verse 20. Seven years of labor to win his love seemed like just a few days because of the love he had for her. His love and the intensity of it never waned through those seven years. And it seemed as but a short time. And you know the story. (laughs) Seven years wasn't the end of it because Uncle Laban sort of turned the deal another seven years. And his love sustained and kept burning intensely those entire years until the day he was married. So love does not burn itself out, nor can many waters or floods drown love's flame. That is a supernatural flame because floods in the normal world, natural world, extinguishes fire. Could be that there's another imagery here. Water in the Old Testament uh, had the idea of chaos. So you can think of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and the chaos of the unformed void world and the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters and all this chaos. The poetic imagery would then be that love burns intense and true no matter what kind of chaos is swirling around uh, love. Love prevails over the chaos. Love doesn't extinguish and die out. Nothing in this terms of love, this supernatural love, can quench the intensity of love. Well, what a beautiful picture the poet has painted of true love. But where will we find a love that measures up to that? We we extol that kind of love (laughs) all the time in music, There was a popular song a few years ago. It was called A Thousand Years. Uh, I have died every day waiting for you, darling. Don't be afraid. I have loved you for a thousand years. I'll love you for a thousand more. Problem is, we can't live up to the fullness of the love expressed in that song, much less the uh, fullness of the high virtues of love in the Song of Solomon. Oh, but the Lord can. And that should not surprise us, should it? Because uh, John tells us in his first epistle, John 4, verse 8 and verse 16, tells us twice, God is love. So let's consider uh, the Lord's love uh, in the picture painted in the Song of Solomon. Uh, First, the Lord's committed love And you might turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and look at verses uh, 6 to 9. Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So you see that word set in verse 7. It means to be attached or joined together with very great love just like attaching your seal to something very special to you. And you see that word keep in verses 8 and 9. That speaks again of the Lord's commitment to keep His oath and to keep His covenant of love. Committed love. Similarly to Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 10 and verses 14 and 15 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on their fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Uh, you might look also at Isaiah 49. Um, uh, just a, a beautiful verse in Isaiah 49, verse 16, speaking of God's committed love for His people and the people of His holy city, Zion. He says, Behold, I have graven you on the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. That's his committed love. In Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23, um, just listen, I'll read it for you. Here God is moving to display his committed love for a people to a person. Uh, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the nations and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. We'll consider also the unyielding strength of God's love. Uh, no foe can conquer God's love for His people. Uh, you might look at Psalm 136. Uh, I love the refrain of, uh, Psalm 36, repeated in every verse, uh, His steadfast love endures forever. Uh, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. 
Again, no foe can conquer God's love for his people, verse 10 and 11. Uh, we are praising and giving thanks to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his love endures forever. And Jesus said, no one snatches my beloved out of my hands. That's John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you have the combined love of God the Father and God the Son through the ministry of the Spirit in the picture of uh, their hands holding you securely in their love. That is unyielding strength of committed love. You could no more escape God's love than you could escape death or the hold of the grave. Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because of the unyielding strength of their love. Uh, consider the unquenchable intensity of God's love. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you, and it would be an unquenchable intensity of that everlasting love. And perhaps one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, John 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Such is the unquenchable intensity of God's love. You see, God excels in every virtue of true love. When we contemplate God's excellency in the virtues of love, it, it appears all the more glorious when it's set aside false love. Okay? And here's the contrast. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, the riches of his house, it would be utterly despised. Notice the fundamental nature of false love. There is no inward commitment to it. There is only outward enticement. And love based on a promise of wealth is as cold and lifeless as the money it's based on. True love is willing to give all of one's wealth to the loved one, but as a secondary act, the primary act is to give yourself. Christ has promised to give us the riches of the kingdom of heaven, but he first gave himself to us. 
Greater love, he said, has no one than this to lay down his life, to give himself for his friends. How sad it is to see a marriage built on things only and only then to fall apart because there's no underlying love to support the union. I think it happens in a spiritual sense too. God offers his love, but some people enticed by the things of the world embrace a false lover. John warns us about false love in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 to 15 to 17. Do not love the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possession is not from the Father, but is from the world, and it's passing away. There's really nothing to offer you. It's just the things. And if you fall in love with it, when the things are gone, you're left with nothing. You will have offers of false love. But the point of the song is to give you wisdom to recognize and reject false lovers. This seems to be part of the ending of the teaching of uh, the Song of Solomon with the closing verses. Um, Solomon had a vineyard. This is the woman speaking again. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyards to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, can keep your thousands. So some applications. Learning to turn away from false love is one application of the passage, but there are others as well. Uh, don't play false with true love. Especially do not play false with God's love. Israel did this in the days of the evil kings, and it had disastrous results. And it's the, the disastrous results are told in the metaphor of a signet ring and a seal. And here it is. Just listen. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. You play false with God's love. And the imagery is, though you are like a signet ring, a seal upon his hand, he will cast you off. That's a warning passage. If you're playing false with God's love, then remember the greatness of God's unquenchable love and return to Him and embrace Him in faith and repentance, and He will not cast you away. 
And here, I think, is really the greatest uh, application of the Song of Solomon that we would see in the figure of the beloved Christ himself, that we would lean on his arm and say to him, set me as a seal on your heart. Set me as a seal on your arm. And what is Christ's response to that request? You'll notice in uh, uh, chapter 8, when the woman says to her beloved this request and extols the virtues of love, what's his answer? It's not in the text there. And why is that? Because he has already answered it in chapter 4, verse 9, where he says, You have captivated my heart. That was his answer. If you ask Christ to set you as a seal upon his heart, his answer would be this, You have already captivated my heart. And he's already proven his absolute commitment and the intensity of his love. Isn't it interesting that the very places where the woman asks her beloved to set the, heel, uh, the seal are the very places where Christ demonstrated his love? First, on his arms, where they were pierced with nails. And then upon his heart, where his side and his heart were pierced with the spear. His committed love was tested and proven genuine. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, let me end with one last verse from the Song of Solomon. It's chapter four, verse, excuse me, chapter three, verse four. It says, when I found him who my soul loves, I held on to him and would not let him go. Again, by analogy, set your affections upon Christ. Having found him who loves you, hold on to him and never let him go. But understand that holding your hands on him is his own hands securing your love for him because his love is the quintessential highest virtue of love, committed love, inwardly, outwardly, unquenchable, unfailing, the perfection of love. Love Christ. That's really the point. And uh, borrowing from Paul's uh, wonderful meditation, may your whole contentment in life be found in your love of Christ and his love for you. And then may all the things of the world, all the false lovers uh, grow strangely dim in the light of his wonderful love.